of Celestial Asgard, a royal voice is raised in protest. Hey there, welcome to Marvel by the Month. My name's Brian Stratton. And mine is Rob Milne. Hey Rob, the world's on fire. (sighs) Yes it is. The funny thing about that we've actually managed to get some lead time in our recording now is like this episode will come out in a couple weeks. So, you know, I mean, hopefully we've still got a studio (laughs) to make more of these. Hopefully Portland is not a cinder. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) it it does feel like we're living through some biblical plagues, though. So, um, yeah, I was saying before we got rolling that um, I'm starting to think that the Old Testament God might exist. Uh, I've never been a very religious person, but I feel like somebody made somebody mad at this point yes yeah and you know if it is the old testament god it would make sense that the focus of the ire is on portland oregon so, <laughs> um and well speaking of our fair city um we we have a guest uh joining us who i think would be fair to say uh is the ambassador if not the official mascot of of portland oregon um for the last decade, uh, he has been the avatar of Portland's weirdness. Um, you may have seen him on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno or Portlandia or Jimmy Kimmel Live. Um, Willamette Week's Reader's Poll named him Portland's best local celebrity in 2016, 2017, 2018, and 2019. <laughs> and he's one of the founders of Weird Portland United, a nonprofit organization that promotes artists and creative types in the Portland community. Uh, his name is Brian Kidd, but you probably know him better as the Unipiper. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, guys. It's uh, good to finally catch up again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been a while. It has <laughs> been a while. Rob and I, uh, which you'll see if you go onto our social media, we are both rocking our uh, Rob-designed <laughs> Unipiper t-shirts, which you knocked those out, uh, what, five year, four or five years ago now? Probably, yeah. I, yeah. I wanted to make a, a enter a rep your city contest and contacted Brian about uh, using the likeness of the Unipiper in it. And then we hit it off well enough to, to make a couple other designs and uh, certainly have been very supportive of weird Portland United and, and following everything he does. So, yeah, it's a pretty cool way to uh, meet folks when people reach out and they're just like, Hey, I want to put you on a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> and I know you've had a lot of, Hey, I want to put you on a beer. Hey, I want to put you on a something. Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how has, I mean, so much of what you do is, you know, going out and, and being around crowds and, and, you know, entertaining at, at events and things like that. How has 2020 been for you? Um, given that a lot of that stuff's not going on. Yeah, it has been uh, different uh, for sure. Um, right around, you know, March, April, um, I think by that point, every single event that I had on the books that the Unipiper was going to be at was canceled by that point. Um, so it at least gave me some uh, space to breathe and figure out what I should be doing. Um, and I was really fortunate, I guess, in that I found uh, a niche that was not, uh, that was open at that time. Um, so I've been spending the majority of the pandemic um, going around to people's houses uh, and performing a uh, happy birthday for them uh, from the street where they can watch one from a socially safe distance. <laughs> That's outstanding. <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, one of the very first ones I did was actually on my birthday. Um, so it was kind of a cool way to kick things off. And, and then um, that idea just kind of really 
caught on. I would say like wildfire, but I, I don't think I should say that right now. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. No. <laughs> I was going to say like maybe one of the the only silver linings to you not being able to do you know the big events is that with everything that's going on, like your flaming bagpipes cannot even be considered a suspect in any. <laughs> yes. So. Before we get rolling here, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, Weird Portland United? Because this is, I know this has been something that has been in your head for a while. Um, and I think it's really exciting that you finally got it rolling. Um, and yeah, just talk a little bit about like the impetus behind it and, and the good stuff you've been doing. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so uh, for many, many years, I've had the idea that there should be some sort of organization, um, like a nonprofit that's dedicated uh, solely to preserving the awesome, weird culture that we have here in Portland, uh, because it is so unique. And um, nothing like that really existed. Um, and I just always felt like it was inevitable. And then um, when it did happen, I would be there to put my support behind it. Um, but then over the past, uh, you know, couple of years, especially over the, you know, maybe three or four years, you know, there's definitely been somewhat of a change in, in like the feel and vibe of what's going on in Portland. And I felt like, you know, this was, if I didn't try something now, you know, um, we may be too far gone to save some of the uh, more cool things that like, you know, what was the last time you saw a tall bicycle riding around Portland? Yeah. Um, so that was sort of the uh, idea for starting um, Weird Portland United, which um, I, I did. Uh, it's a, a fully formed uh, 501c3 uh, nonprofit um, dedicated, of course, solely to keeping Portland weird. Um, so then the, the that was the easy part. The hard part now is figuring out, well, what does that actually mean? And how do you go about doing that? Um, and, and now how do you go about doing that uh, in the context of everything else that has been happening uh, in 2020? Um, but outside of all that, you know, I'm happy to report we have had some uh, success already. Um, last year, we held the first annual Weird Portland Gala, where we raised $15,000 uh, for our efforts. Um, and then uh, we launched the Weird Portland Hall of Fame. Uh, and since the pandemic, we've been, uh, we've given out uh, over $3,000 uh, in grants to local Portland uh, creatives who are doing something and in need of that help uh, during the pandemic. I got to attend the first gala and uh, NC Bud Clark and in the message from Darcel and so many excellent things. Um, I, it was so well done and I was very, very proud and happy and got to, you know, say hi at one point in the middle of your many, many, many uh, things to do during that night. Um, but yeah, very, it, it was, it was great just seeing people dressed like Rowdy Roddy Piper. Um, I think I had some devil horns which I hope didn't cause this, um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it didn't help. <laughs> well, thanks for saying that. You know, that, that makes me feel like you said, we are doing something right. So um, as, as long as we're still standing and uh, haven't burned down, uh, I'm going to keep out, keep being out there trying. Right on. So we brought you on here to talk about some Marvel comics. Uh, we've got three issues that we're going to talk about a little later in the show. Um, before we get rolling on that, um, just curious to talk about your level of comics fandom um, and specifically how many of these guys have you dressed up as? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that uh, Spider-Man is probably the only one uh, that I have officially dressed up as uh, as the Unifier. Uh, my level of uh, fandom uh, goes 
pretty deep on the Marvel side of things. Um, my introduction to the Marvel Universe was uh, through trading cards. So I, I grew up on those, collecting those, and uh, then I got into reading uh, Spider-Man comics. Um, and let's get that couple Spider-Man statues here behind me. Um, nice. So, you know, I'm not wearing the mask. I'm walking the walk, too. Um, <laughs> but most of the comics that I have read uh, are probably like 90% or just Spider-Man and primarily in the 80s and 90s. Um, I'm obviously aware of uh, the history um, of Spider-Man, the character going way back. Um, but to actually dive in and read some of the older stuff, I haven't done a lot of that. Um, and this was definitely the first Thor comic that I've ever read all the way through. Wow, that's a that's a odd choice for the first one. I'm really interested to hear about your takeaways from that one. <laughs> but we'll get to that in a sec. Um, so this is great. Um, I, I think you're you're. Uh, First of all, 80s and 90s Spider-Man is a, a great era of Spider-Man. Um, that's basically my sweet spot, too, um, for that character. And we've talked about this before, but um, there's there's two types of guests that we really love having on the show. The, the first is the folks who know this stuff inside and out and can like provide a level of insight and detail that we don't have that, you know, and they can expand upon all the stuff that we're talking about. And then the other is like folks who have not read any 1960s Marvel comics and they're just like, what did you give me? Uh, so yeah, this, this should be great. But, uh, but before we dive into the comics uh, for the month of November, 1966, um, we are going to provide a little historical context um, for what was going on uh, in that month. Uh, so, Rob, would you like to uh, start us out with that? Yeah. Uh, in November, on the 13th, uh, the Israeli army tanks swept across the border from Israel and attacked three towns located two miles inside of Jordan. Jordan's ambassador to the United Nations told reporters that 13 Jordanian soldiers and 13 civilians had been killed in the attack, which came the day after four Israeli army personnel had been killed by a landmine on their side of the border. So um, Israel is starting to, to flex. I'm sure that'll be something to keep an eye on. Um, I found this really interesting. So on the 21st of November, uh, Johns Hopkins Hospital of Baltimore, Maryland, announced that it had opened its gender identity clinic in July and had started accepting applications for the first gender reassignment surgery in the United States. Wow. Um, which that struck me as like, that's incredibly, that, that's much earlier than I thought. And it also seemed like very progressive for, you know, 1966. Um, and then I read a little further down uh, the Wikipedia article uh, for November 1966 and came across this thing um, from the 30th of November um, at a meeting of the American Medical Association in Las Vegas. Dr. Ralph Greenson, a psychiatry professor at UCLA, told his fellow physicians of a university survey that found that more than 100 people wanted to change their gender. What is shocking, said Dr. Greenson, is that this is more widespread than was believed. He also said that American males were becoming, quote, indifferent to sex, uh, blaming the increased assertiveness of women as something that, quote, repulses some males. <laughs> it's horrifying, he told his audience. A danger to the future of the human race. 
Our only hope is that basic instincts will eventually win out, that a true equality of the sexes will emerge, and sex will be fun again. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> maybe not quite as ready for progress as we thought. Right. That was a roller coaster of a statement. There. <laughs> it's got to uh, start somewhere. Yeah, which it, it seemed more progressive when you first stated it about the actual, you know, uh, surgery side of things. But then, yeah, then it didn't sound progressive at all. Um, yeah. So that's how it goes. That's that's the ups and downs of every essay we do for every month of this. Um, but speaking of ups and downs, let's talk about the Beatles by the month. This is my favorite uh, non-real podcast that I we talk about. <laughs> Um, on the 9th of November, John Lennon met Yoko Ono at the Indica Gallery, a counterculture art gallery in London, which was exhibiting a collection of Ono's art at the time. So this is where their uh, grand romance began. Um, also on the 9th um, or of November was at the date of one of the Paul is Dead rumors that would begin uh, really take taking hold in 1967 and just keep going like crazy, especially in America. Um, so uh, this was following the retirement of the Beatles from live performances. So they weren't seen as much and people just started uh, making just really making these conspiracy theories. So according to the urban legend, Paul McCartney had been killed in an auto accident on November 9th, 1966. Um, he'd been replaced by a lookalike. Um, uh, who was often referred to as either Billy Shears or um, uh, I think that was, that was the main name that I loved so much since it was referenced in Sgt. Pepper's album. And there's all kinds of references throughout the songs. Glass Onion has a reference about Paul being the walrus. Uh, If here's another clue for you all, the walrus was Paul. Um, Paul's mini Cooper was in an accident, but Paul wasn't driving it. Um, uh, this was actually a little later than the rumor had started, uh, like the next year. He was riding with Mick Jagger at the time, and a friend was driving his car, and they were all headed to a third-party location for the evening um, when his friend wrecked his car. Uh, so that was another—that just fed this whole fire. So um, a few years later, in an edition of Life magazine dated 7 November 1969, McCartney reassured fans that— Quote, rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated, paraphrasing Mark Twain. Then he said, however, if I was dead, I'm sure I'd be the last to know, which I thought was a glorious <laughs> quote. So is, is it um, in one of these issues, there was a Beatles uh, reference. Um, is, is this the first time we've had the Beatles uh, mentioned in the pages of Marvel? Oh, no, they are. um they, 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 it has been so far that at one point Ben Grimm, the thing had a Beatles wig on, uh, and they were, they were headed to a show. So, uh, so they were the, like Stan Lee has been like, the Beatles are popular. We need to make sure we mention those guys. And I'd say they've been, they've been referenced repeatedly, but never accurately. So, yeah. um, so the other Beatles news is on the 24th, the Beatles began recording their classic Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band album. Um, starting with Strawberry Fields Forever, which was uh, released as a single before that album came out. 
Um, well, just to close this uh, section out, uh, in honor of our guest, I have a couple of pieces of historical weirdness to share. Um, so uh, the first one uh, comes to us from West Virginia on the 12th of November. Uh, the legend of the Mothman began uh, when five gravediggers in Clenenden, West Virginia, said that they had witnessed what looked like a brown human being flying out of the trees. Uh, a similar sighting by another group of people in another part of West Virginia would happen three days later, uh, inspiring a best-selling book and a 2002 horror film. Uh, I have a funny note about that. Okay. I, in high school, um, with my friend Thaddeus, who played music with me for years too, uh, we were in art class together, and we built an eight-foot-tall Mothman <laughs> with giant wings and glowing red eyes. Uh, and uh, for a long time, it stood on the roof of the, his house that we mutually lived in with a number of other people who played music. Um, it stood above the door. I mean, it had it covered a good 10 feet wide with the wings um, <laughs> and uh, it was built out of paper mache and layered and layered until it could withstand weather for quite some time. It <laughs> did eventually die and we put it in a pyre Darth Vader style. Just to, <laughs> That's amazing. Guest. A, couple, a couple of years ago, I went uh, to the Mothman uh, museum oh. in West Virginia and uh, in the town square, they have a giant eight foot metal Mothman sculpture. And it is amazing. <laughs> I love it. Oh man. Uh, well, the other, uh, the last piece of uh, weird news and the last bit of historical context I have to share is that uh, on November 15th, 1966, the low-budget American horror film Manos, The Hands of Fate, was released. <laughs> classic. Uh, yeah, it would become a cult classic more than 25 years later as one of the greatest Mystery Science Theater 3000 episodes of all time. Yep. Um, I've seen them yeah. do riff that one live now, too, in the last <laughs> five or six years. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there you go. That's what was happening in November 1966. Uh, we're going to go ahead and take our first break of the episode. And then when we come back, we're going to talk a little Amazing Spider-Man here on Marvel by the Month. Welcome back to Marvel by the Month. Uh, we're going to talk about this month's Amazing Spider-Man. It's Amazing Spider-Man number 45. It was written by Stan Lee with art by John Romita. The name of the story is Spidey Smashes Out. Um, and this is the second part of the two-issue return of the Lizard storyline that began last month. Um, so I'm just going to do a quick summary of both issues, and then we can dig in. Uh, so uh, last issue, while waiting for his family to arrive at a train station, Dr. Kurt Connors feels himself starting to transform back into the Lizard. Um, so Lizard goes on a rampage. Uh, he robs a jewelry store to get Spider-Man's attention, um, possibly get him blamed for the robbery. Um, basically get Spidey off his back. Um, and then uh, at the end of the issue, um, in a fight with the lizard, Spidey lands badly on his arm and sprains it, uh, and the lizard is still at large. Um, so that's where we pick up in this month's issue, um, where we see uh, it starts out with the lizard breaking into his own home to try and discover the formula that created him so that he can raise an army of reptiles to conquer the world. <laughs> Um, Spidey tracks the lizard to a train yard uh, where the lizard's trying to liberate a reptile exhibition that's headed for Philadelphia. 
Um, and then after an extended fight, Spidey lures the lizard into a refrigerated train car where his metabolism slows to almost nothing. That gives Spidey time to get him back to Kurt Connor's lab and whip up a serum to reverse the lizard formula and turn him back uh, into the <laughs> mild-mannered scientist and Spidey friend. Um, so that's that's the high-level overview of this thing. Um, Brian, you were saying that Spidey's your guy. Um, what did you think of uh, of this, the lizard story? I thought the story um, was pretty good. Um, I think what stood out to me the most was just sort of the overall tone of the comics and reading it through you know the eyes of modern day uh it really felt almost like a parody of itself like oh this is how people make fun of comics and how comics speak sounds like but you know that that had to start somewhere and um like this is this is it but at the time i'm sure it was read very very different it may have felt not out of date at all yeah yeah um, had you, were you familiar with this story before? Uh, I mean, you're obviously familiar with the lizard as a character. Um, yeah, I can't say that I was particular. I mean, it, it, the lizard lore, like all of it just runs together at some point, you know, you know, you know, the story of Kirk Connors and, you know, that Spider-Man has battled him. Um, but you know, what I loved reading, picking up in this one was just how it, it there were references to, I guess this was the second time that Spider-Man had, you know, encountered the lizard. Um, yeah. and, and there were all these references to like the last time. And it, it seemed like everything that was happening was basically just a rehash of the last time that they, that they met. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, the, the, the same plan, you know, to, um, create a race of super lizards to take over the world, which is a brilliant plan. <laughs> I, I don't think you should ever, ever steer too far from that one. Yeah. It's like when you're playing like a like an RPG or something, and um, you know you've you've beaten a boss early in the game, and then he comes back, and then you've got to like do the exact same thing, but it's more difficult this time. Yeah, uh, yeah. basically, with this, you have an is. arm in a sling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did love. Uh, I forgot about all of the times I've read Spidey comics where he's injured in some way, because um, Spidey gets the crap beat out of him a lot. Like that's just one of the. <laughs> parts of the this of his, of Peter Parker's life it's like he gets really beaten and then has to continue to function in some way or uh trick people into thinking he's not hurt um and this was just great to see so early him just running around trying to figure out how to web sling by building bridges with webs and and running across <laughs> them and all kinds of weird things and very verbose this this was a dense comic i mean we talk about them being dense but this was there was hardly room for any art sometimes yeah and, the, and part of that is because there's so many different storylines going on in this thing i mean like i basically just covered the the main plot the lizard you know versus spidey plot but there's like a half dozen other things going on in the background of this thing and there's a, a bit um like right in the middle of the book there's like a two-page spread um uh, on pages nine and ten where uh, it's actually a really great piece of comic storytelling because Stan and, and Ramita are just like, okay, let's check in on this plot. Let's check in on this plot. Let's check in on this plot. You've got um, Frederick Foswell, uh, the Daily Bugle reporter. Um, he still wants to figure out how Peter Parker keeps getting photos of Spidey that no one else seems to be able to get. Um, so you've got that plot going. Uh, and then like 
Jonah's talking to him, and then Jonah talks to Ned Leeds and Peter's ex-girlfriend, Betty Brant, who are planning their wedding. So just reminding you that this is going on in the background also. <laughs> um, and then we see Peter. Um, he's deciding that he's going to uh, use his new motorcycle as the excuse to explain his sprained arm. So he's like, oh, yeah, Peter bought a motorcycle, which – this is this has been a big plot point uh, for the last several issues of Spider-Man that Peter Parker's a bad boy now. He's got a motorcycle, <laughs> um, and he painted it red with a brush. Yeah, that that, <laughs> that was how that plot advanced this issue. <laughs> there was some really good attention to detail too um, when um, Peter was talking on the phone to Kurt Connors' wife, and he remembered that he has only ever talked to her as Spider-Man. So when he's talking to her on the phone, he's holding his Spider-Man mask up to his mouth, so it <laughs> sounds muffled like he's wearing the mask. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and. Like talking of of Kurt Connor's wife and and the family, like I think I've mentioned this before, but the thing that really makes the lizard more than just like a monster of the week is the whole family angle. Like, um, you know, the fact that like his his wife is concerned for him. She's trying to like protect their son from knowing what's going on, and like, but he knows something's wrong, and he's nervous, and like it, it adds a whole other layer of tension. I mean, especially like. I mean, I think I picked up on that when I was younger, but definitely since, you know, having a family of my own, like that became like, oh man, yeah, that would suck. It's not too deep to go into this, these ideas of like uh, abuse in a family or something, the way people change in their behavior. And so you could, I mean, I don't feel like they're trying to go there. I'm just reading into it a little bit deeper for uh, like to, to make these archetypes of people and their behaviors. But uh, so I think about those kinds of things when I'm reading it, but, um, but it, it seems a little lighter than that. Like it's uh, the leave it to beaver version of that, right. uh, you know, uh, it's just not. It's, yeah. I mean, I feel that is something that like other writers picked up later on down the road, you know, where it's like, yeah, Kurt Connors, he's, he's, he's a loving, devoted dad. Except when he gets that lizard serum, you know, and then it's like, uh oh, daddy's on the sauce again. And yeah. He's got his other arm and a tail and a bunch of teeth. Yeah. Yep. Um, one thing I also liked in there was uh, when the lizard um, just like instantly needed a lair. And so he like smashes a wall and he's like, this will do. Now I have a lizard lair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he runs into the subway, just punches through a wall. Like, sewers, awesome. Yeah. And. <laughs> And of course, you know, the story ends with with Peter uh, completely. He's victorious, right? I mean, he's he's done the thing that he set out to do. He's he's turned Kurt Connors back into a normal person. But, you know, it ends with him being completely overwhelmed with all the problems that he's facing. Um, and he's blam- now he's he started blaming Spider-Man for the state of his life. So it's like he has this love hate relationship with being Spider-Man. Um, and then, it, like, it ends on this really deeply ironic note where you've got the Connors family, where they're you know they're all happy, you know they're back together again, and and you know they can't imagine there's anything they could possibly do to repay Spider-Man for his help. Um, and uh, yeah, Kurt Connors says he's like he's so powerful, he's so self-sufficient. A person like him probably has everything a man could wish for. <laughs> um, so yeah. Right um, after we just see you know Peter throwing his mask away and sitting in the dark alone <laughs> just yeah t- total peter parker moves yep it's it's tough being <laughs> spider-man man it, it was actually you know um another thing that i took away from reading it was just that um how the characters came across especially kurt and peter like 
you could really tell that this was like Stan's vision for the characters and he understood them on a level that, you know, but only he could at that point. I mean, other than Steve Ditko who had wandered off by now. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and this whole, like now that Stan's starting to introduce this idea that, you know, Peter Parker hates being Spider-Man. I mean, it's always kind of been there, but he's really starting to lean on it. Um, and that's building toward a storyline that's going to be coming up um, a few months down the road where basically he's like, you know what? I'm done with this. Um, and yeah, so, but it's, he Stan's really gotten into a really good rhythm with plotting these stories now. Um, especially Spider-Man, um, where it's like, he's planting seeds for things that he knows are going to pay off, um, you know, six months down the road. So, um, which considering that he's basically writing everything that Marvel's putting out right now is wild. Yeah. That level of attention to detail is, is pretty crazy. So that's, uh, that's our dose of Spider-Man for the month. How about we, uh, we take another break and then, uh, Rob, would you like to, try and explain what happened in x-men this month i i can do, i can try <laughs> let's take a break and let me think about that for a second <laughs> okay well uh, don't go anywhere and and i'm speaking specifically to you rob uh we'll be right back here on marvel by the month All right, welcome back to Marvel by the Month. Let's talk about the X-Men. This month, we have X-Men number 28, written by Roy Thomas, art by Werner Roth, with Dick Ayers. It's called The Whale of the Banshee. (laughs) It's the first appearance of the Banshee, and he's a bad guy. Uh, When we see him at the start of the issue, he breaks into an art gallery with his sonic powers and steals a single painting of a Gaelic landscape. Uh, He's working with another new baddie called the Ogre, who's trying to discover the secret headquarters of the X-Men for a mysterious group called Factor 3. I heard mysterious group right after this whole secret empire thing we just went through. I was like, oh, God. Um, So anyway. Back at Xavier's school, the X-Men are having their own internal struggles. The Mimic is now part of the team, and he's been named the team leader after defeating all of the X-Men single-handedly last issue. So um, Banshee then helps the ogre kidnap Professor X, but the X-Men free him and the bad guys flee. In the meantime, Professor X comes up with ear protection for the X-Men to prevent Banshee's sonic powers from affecting them. Uh, when Banshee returns, the X-Men capture him, and when the Ogre tries to free him, they beat him as well. But it turns out that it was all part of Professor X's plan. Banshee was actually being forced to help the Ogre with a headband that could have been used to kill him. It's like a Snake Plissken thing. Like, he, he will blow his head off. Right, um, something so, like that. <laughs> so this headband... Uh, was uh you know basically making him do he had to do whatever they told him or they would you know blow up his head so he did cooperate so that's the basics of the story um then it so let's just talk about what what let's dive in Um, so yeah, so first of all, uh, I, I am, I'm a Banshee fan as well. Um, I don't think I had ever read this issue before. Um, so I was not familiar with, I I think I always had a vague awareness that he started out as a criminal. Um, but I didn't realize that he, 
he was like, he started out as a criminal, but he never actually was a criminal. Um, that, you know, he was just, you know, basically a hostage, uh, more than anything else. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, this is just another one of those books where, uh, they throw a lot at you, um, in the course (laughs) of this feels like this could have been stretched out to a couple or three issues. Um, but instead, Roy Thomas is like, just make the panels smaller and I'll put more word balloons in them. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was very overwhelming. I'll just put it that way. I had to read this issue twice to fully understand everything that was going on. I was, I was yeah, confused yeah, yeah. by the end whether Banshee was supposed to just suddenly be good or where he stood. Yeah. But at some point, apparently, Banshee and Professor X hatched a plan together, but there's no indication of that anywhere earlier in the issue. But then again, I guess, you know, he's a telepath, so you can pretend that was how it got resolved. Banshee does spend an awful lot of time in the end explaining how this twist works, um, <laughs> which is not a great side of comics yeah. telling. Uh, and also his powers work uh, in, in as they often do in the X-Men, especially in mysterious ways. Um, you know, there's there's the sonic power you would expect. Okay, he makes loud noises, but and that can debilitate people. But he also um, he can sonically fly uh, very fast, right. um, which it's not totally clear exactly what he's doing there. He there were some other ways that the power manifested too. Um, some kind of there's some sonic bursts which again makes some kind of sense but then there were some other uh i'm trying to remember he did something that was affecting people's minds <laughs> with his sonic he, he like put uh, them to sleep <laughs> yeah yes yeah yeah so he sort of it was like a hypnotic i guess you know there's some precedent for for all of these things to have something to do with sound so it's not like when it, when, you know, Magneto is reading your mind with magnet powers. Right. Um, it's it. Uh, but, it's not quite that big of a like, stretch, which we've already yeah, seen. But but like sometimes he's also invisible, or like hard yeah. to see. Like you can't explain that with sound waves. <laughs> yeah, I, I have basic understanding of physics, and I and none of this works out. But um, but yeah, I was so excited to see him. Banshee was uh, one of my favorite heroes. Because he was <laughs> vaguely Irish Scottish, they they're sometimes <laughs> in this book where they say <laughs> he's both Irish and Scottish, <laughs> and uh, and ov- obviously the lore is all Irish. So um, yeah, and there's there's nothing offensive about that, right? Like you know, <laughs> Scottish and Irish people notoriously they're chill if you confuse one for the right. Other. It's like New Zealand and Australia; they're yeah, the same yeah, place fine, basically. Mix up uh, Scottish and Irish bagpipes all the time. <laughs> what is what's the difference between Scottish and Irish bagpipes? Um, so the, the Scottish pipes are what I play um, that you blow into, and the Irish pipes um, have the uh, leg or uh, arm bellows that you just uh, you know open and close and okay. move the air through, so you don't actually put blow air into them. Gotcha. More like so, accordion style. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. 
They're yeah. learning, learn something. We learn more that just now than we did from anything specific about the cultures that uh, Banshee is su- supposed to be representing. Yeah, I, I think um, I walked out of this issue knowing less than I. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when it, I went into it, it was really confusing how this was like the introduction of a new character, but we got zero information about where he really came from. It just the story starts and he's there, and then you just sort of pick it up and go from there. Yeah. <laughs> and he looks like a caricature <laughs> as i was saying uh he looks and acts like uh, more like in this issue than when i encountered him later he seemed like a pretty cool character in the late 70s uh here he just seems like some kind of screaming lucky charms mascot you, you know, know the uh, shape of his head was almost the same shape as like the uh notre dame uh uh leprechaun mascot like oh yeah a perfectly square head <laughs> with a very jowly face yeah the, the distance between his like the the bottom of his nose and the top of his upper lip is like that's like a forehead's worth of distance <laughs> yeah so he's uh, so weird looking so that would also in like the kirby drawing style indicate total villain so right. to have him suddenly maybe not be a villain at the end of it seemed weird because he looks weird, which is in the, uh, in, in that sort of vernacular visual style of the era. If you have a, you know, exaggerated face, you're probably a villain, uh, <laughs> which I take offense at with my giant head. <laughs> well, with that face, um, uh, also Banshee. Let's let's not forget here, gentlemen. Banshee, Banshee was not the only character we we're introduced to in this uh, issue. We also met the ogre, who we learned nothing about. Yeah. Like, so first of all, he he basically just looks like like a high school principal in a purple jumpsuit, <laughs> um, and. He he's working for a mysterious group called Factor Three, but there's no like I don't know what his deal is. Like, he's got I, like jets. He doesn't have. I don't think he has any inherent powers. He just has a suit that has some cool stuff. Um, yeah, I guess so. But yeah, I, I forgot he was in there. Honestly, by the time I finished reading this, the his existence, <laughs> he is not a Thanos of the uh, villain, uh, the villains of the Marvel universe. Did did he ever make a return? I man, I don't know. I I should have looked that up when I was prepping the notes um, because I I read a lot of Marvel comics and <laughs> I have never seen this character in any other context. So yeah. Well, it's funny how they introduced both of them, and Banshee went on to become you know a fairly significant character, and then right. the other one would just fall into complete obscurity. Yeah. <laughs> And that's, I mean, that's pretty unusual, actually, for this era of Marvel Comics. Like, I mean, not that every character they introduce is a winner, but they they have so, such a small roster of characters at this point. And, you know, all the writers and artists are so overworked. I mean, writers, it's Stan and Roy Thomas, like, that's it. So it, it's really unusual for them to, like, introduce a character and then not bring that character back at some point, because it's way easier to just be like, what are you going to do this month? It's like, oh, I don't know. Who haven't we used in 18 months? Like, grab them, you know. Um, but yeah, I don't know if Ogre ever shows up again. I uh, I have some news. As we oh. were talking, I, I clicked and clacked, and uh, Ogre does indeed show up again. It's always such a surprise to me 
uh, Brian uh, has done this as we go through the series where we're like, they introduce a villain and I'm like, I've never, I have no recollection of that villain. And I've read decades of comic books and turns out that villain did come back. Uh, so yeah, the, um, the ogre is named Brian Dunlap, (laughs) Brian with an I. So, so this one goes to the unipiper, Brian, (laughs) Brian off. Um, he's, he's teams up with, uh, a lot of different of the, uh, X-Men villains (laughs) moving forward and was part of the Thunderbolts later on. Really? So, uh, yeah. So okay. there you go. He's a, Does it say what his power is? Uh, it says he uh, is a human inventor who's classified as a genius. So his power is hit the tech he, he uses. I don't know no, about no real power. as a genius. I, I think I would do something a little more flattering, too, with my outfit if I were him. Well, inventor is not the same as designer. No, that's true. He's got an engineer's mind. <laughs> no, in the Marvel Universe... <laughs> <laughs> a high school chemist can uh, make somebody turn back from a lizard into a human. So, you know, it's like, wow. It, yeah. What a, what a funny, weird issue. Um, but Hey, we got Banshee out of it. Um, who does wind up being a pretty quality character. Um, so, you know, we're going to let's, let's take the partial victory. Um, yep. And, they, and, they started the character. There we go. We'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go ahead uh, and take our final break of the episode. Um, and then when we come back, oh boy, we got to unpack uh, what happened in Thor this month. Um, this is going to break my brain. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll be right back here on Marvel by the Month. <laughs> Welcome back to Marvel by the Month. Um, so in uh, Valentine's Day this year, um, Rob and I did a special episode where we brought our wives on and had them read uh, some Marvel comics uh, that specialized in uh, where they focused on relationship drama in the Marvel Universe of the 1960s. Uh, they weren't super amused. Um, no. And <laughs> all I can think is like, wow, did we dodge a bullet by not having them read uh, this month's Thor's Thor comic. Uh, Cause yeah. Um, this is Thor 136. Uh, it's written by Stan Lee art by Jack Kirby inked by Vince Coletta. The name of the story is to become an immortal. Um, and I'm just going to give you the summary straight and then we can try to make sense of this madness in a previous issue. Uh, Odin, Uh, had given his word uh, to Thor that he would no longer stand between Thor and his mortal love, Nurse Jane Foster. Thor had been sweet on her for like 40 issues. Um, It was finally going to happen. The big obstacle uh, with Odin not approving of his son falling in love with the mortal was out of the way, cleared the path. So here we go. Uh, But if you think that the uh, King of the Norse Gods is going to play fair, you obviously have not read any uh, Norse (laughs) legends because that's not how they do. Odin can get a little tricksy too. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so Thor takes Jane to Asgard, uh, where she is immediately overwhelmed by literally everything that she sees. Um, uh, Odin transforms her into an immortal um, and she takes flight. And then she immediately freaks out about that as well. Um, so Thor is starting to get concerned that Jane might not be cut out for life as an eternal. Um, 
and then Odin subjects her to a trial <laughs> against <laughs> the unknown, uh, which is this crazy multi-limbed beast that comes out of the darkness at her and tries to crush her. Um, she quite understandably also freaks out about that. Um, so Thor rescues her, but the damage is done. Uh, Odin has seen enough. Uh, and even Jane does not want to stick around Asgard and Thor's family any longer. She has had enough. Um, so <clears throat> Odin sends her back to earth and wipes her memory. Uh, she winds up working, uh, as a nurse for a doctor who looks a lot like Don Blake, except less lame. Um, and, uh, to cure Thor's broken heart, Odin sends him off into battle against the unknown, which is still on the loose, just tearing stuff up around Asgard. Um, just when it seems like Thor might actually lose the fight, uh, the female Asgardian warrior Sif makes her debut and rescues him. Thor is deeply smitten with her immediately, just as Odin planned. God. Oh, boy. Um, where do we start with this? <laughs> I'll start by saying uh, it the way Kirby draws this too, a lot of the panels early on, you really feel you, you feel for Jane Foster. Like it's pretty overwhelming. They're on the Bifrost and like a bunch of horses and warriors come storming by. This is just as they're walking into town. Like this is meeting the in-laws times a million, you know, uh, it's (laughs) just everything is, you know, made, makes you feel like a, it's like a carnival ride. Like, you get a little, you know, motion sick just thinking about what she's processing, or at yeah. least that's what I was doing. Uh, I think that maybe that wasn't necessarily the main point uh, to empathize with Jane, but uh, because everyone else is like, Jane, just go with it. You're going to have superpowers and live forever. <laughs> it's great. Because everyone in Asgard is a 13-year-old boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've read a lot of stories where women are treated pretty poorly. <laughs> Like in, in very 1960s ways, not like viciously or vindictively, just like, you know, kind of the casual sexism of Mad Men. Um, I think this is definitely the worst uh, of uh, thing that we've read so far as far as that goes. Like there's no point at which anyone considers it's like either Jane might be totally entitled to have the feelings and opinions that she's having right now. Uh, no one for a second says maybe we should just give her a second to settle in a little bit and you know just like take a breath um, and at no point does Thor ever kind of does it occur to him it's like hey this is the person who I want to spend the rest of my life well the rest of her life with um, and maybe I have to give up a little something and she has to give up a little something we have to meet in the middle somewhere like there's none of that Right. Anywhere. In Instead, story. it's dropping into Asgard, which is uh, for a mortal who hasn't been there or, you know, anywhere sort of off of Midgard. That's like just getting triple dosed with LSD and not knowing it, you know, just there. <laughs> she She's just brought into a bad trip. And uh, and so she's now got to try to process. And I think she did pretty well. But, uh, you know, they could have given her a week to just sort of chill out and see the sights for, you know, take your time settling into Asgard. Uh, but no, just thrown right into a battle with a rocky multi-limbed beast of the shadows. Um, you know, <laughs> not cool. Bad trip. Yeah. <laughs> so is this in line with how her character has been portrayed up to this point where she's just always the absolute, you know, weakly in need, in need of protection by the big strong man? 
Yeah, I mean, pretty much. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's always being rescued, always being kidnapped. It's the normal um, trope of, you know, again, where these cliches come from. Uh, although these have been going on for for decades before this, this mm-hmm. is just, uh, you know, cementing it. We, we've also talked on the show, like, I don't think either one of us was a huge fan of the whole, like, you know, Jane Foster is in love with Thor's alter ego, lame Dr. Blake, you know, who Thor turns into if he doesn't have his hammer with him for 60 seconds. Yeah, It's like the whole like secret identity thing and like mortal love affair was not the most compelling story in the book. But even that said, like, this is a pretty cruel way to close that story out. You know, yeah. where it, it's like she she's set up. She is set up to be the problem, the you know, with the whole thing. And she's really just the victim of godly shenanigans. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then she gets like sent to Earth and her mind wiped. And it's like and set up with another dude. And there you go. Like, do you, do you know what happens from here? Is it a long time before we see Jane again? Um, she does show up again, um, in, in the not too distant future. Um, and she's part of the Marvel universe for, from then on. And in yep. fact, later she becomes Thor. Right. So that's yeah, awesome. Ultimately. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, which is great. I mean, I feel like I, I'm sure that that was written with, you know, awareness of this story. And I, I like the fact that Jane basically gets the last laugh. Um, yeah. <laughs> is that she, she proves herself worthy and she lifts the hammer and she's like, here you go. But yeah, I, I, I didn't love, uh, I didn't love the way that they blew that storyline off. Also that first meeting between Thor and Sif is a little creepy. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> um, just to add, it's already just feeling like taking any agency for women out of the room. And then you get that creepy, creepy, I used to know you when you were a little kid kind of thing. And that's just not. Yeah. Can it be thou art Sif, the raven tressed child, whom once I dangled upon my knee, but by my mallet, thou art child no longer. It's like, oh, Thor. Come on, God. man. <laughs> right and and Thor's been pining after Jane Foster. Like even if Jane did, you know, sort of fail out of Asgard training, it, for him to just be like, yeah, I guess she's not going to cut it. Next, you know. Yeah, how long was she she's been gone for what? 2 hours maybe? Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> and his mind was not wiped. So <laughs> like that also seems very out of character for him. He like fought Hercules over her recently. It's it's like <laughs> He's he's not gonna give up that easily. He's done. He's gone to far reaches of universes for her, and uh, now he's just like, yeah, she didn't cut it. Next, and yeah. that's just lame. It's yeah. lame for his character. It doesn't speak well of any dude in this story or <laughs> any dude who was involved in creating this story. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the hard part. The sixties, man. Yeah. Uh. Oh, and, and the, uh, I think the thing, the thing that made me almost want to just, you know, like throw the iPad across the room when I finished reading the story, it's the last two panels. So, uh, Odin's watching Thor and Sif walk off hand in hand on his, like his God television. Um, and one of his, uh, his little minions, uh, is talking to him. He says, in thine infinite wisdom, sire, thou hast this day performed a seeming miracle. 
And Odin says, Nay, not so. I did but provide the time, the setting. But only in the heart can be found the final enchanted ingredient men call love. And so say we all. Like, what? Yeah, like, that, that was where just, I was like, I wanted that him to be pronouncing that in a room full of people that just crickets happen after yeah. he yells that. I'm like, no, nah, Odin, no, not cool. Just like the, 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 <laughs> the, the patting themselves on the back. <laughs> it's just so gross. <laughs> oh. Wow. Yeah. And yet another, that's the other thing of this era, <laughs> Brian, is like, Mind wiping is uh, happens every five seconds, and pretty much Professor X solves every problem by X Men get thrown at an enemy, they all lose. Then he just wipes the enemy's mind. Next story, and it's uh, he's like, now he won't be a villain because I wiped his mind. Uh, there's <laughs> just the ethical <laughs> questions that arise from this were not visited very often. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I. I- in total, in that story, there was not a lot really happening plot-wise because it was really simple and short. And and then, so I guess that's why the last five pages were taken up with another story. Oh yeah, so this um, it, at, at the time, uh, Thor had these these five page backups um, called Tales of Asgard which are like flashback stories to things that happened long ago. Um, It's basically to like fill in some of the Norse mythology. So that's the way it is in pretty much every issue. Um, Mm. But yeah, but you do get these like these slightly shorter stories, which I, it kind of like, not with this one, but it, it sort of, um, it really kind of forces them to think, a little bit more focused uh, in the storytelling, which I actually kind of like. Like Thor stories, feel like they move really quickly, um, especially comp- uh, compared to anything else that Marvel's publishing at this point. Like um, they're like a lot of action, um, and you know, and and just like they get to the point. Um, so yeah, that's why uh, that's why that was like that. That concludes the three issues we we're going to talk about. Um, so, uh, what we do uh, to end every episode, uh, is we talk about panels of the month that stuck out to us. Um, so, uh, I have one in mind and it's from this issue. So, uh, I'll just go ahead. Um, and Rob, you actually touched on this earlier. Um, but it's the, uh, it's from page three of Thor 136 panel number one. Um, and it's the, uh, the shot of, it's the half page panel of, uh, Thor and Jane Foster on the Rainbow Bridge with all the uh, mounted uh, Asgardian warriors rushing past them. Um, and I just, I love this panel so much. Um, in his later years, uh, Jack Kirby, he designed uh, Thunder the Barbarian, uh, that cartoon for Hanna-Barbera. <laughs> uh, he designed DC's Superpowers toys and the Centurions animated series and toy line. And the shot of all these guys um, riding by, it looks like to me like a concept sketch for a toy line that never was. Um, and it, like every character, every little one of these warriors uh, has like distinctive and unique armor and horse barding. Like they don't look like an army. There's no uniform there, you know, no uniform look. It's like everyone has he just created like a different kind of helmet for every character. Um, and I just love it when Kirby's just allowed to just like, Hey Jack, go into your brain for a couple hours and just draw whatever comes out. Um, we'll it's, ride around it's lovely. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Rob, what do you got? 
Um, I'm going to go with uh, John Romita this time and say the our splash page, page one of the Spidey story in uh, issue number 45. It's just the that what I was talking about earlier, the the wounded Spider-Man. Uh, it just started off and instantly tells you what's going on. Like Spider-Man is messed up, but he's still in the suit and he's still running around trying to, you know, solve something. And just seeing him walk across this weird web bridge with his, you know, arm in a sling. Um, it just reminded me of so many different stories I've read over the years. And, uh, and it's, it's a fairly iconic shot. It's not like super, uh, detailed. It's just that it's shot like from under him running on the thing. So it's something that Ramita does really well too, is these crazy camera angles. So mm-hmm. I, uh, yeah. And, and honestly, there wasn't a lot of other than some of those images in Thor that were like weird drug trips there. There weren't <laughs> a lot of big panels that we haven't already discussed when we were talking about the fantastic four stories or mm-hmm. other things. So, so I'm going to go with that. All right. Sounds good. Uh, Brian, we didn't uh, ask you to pick a panel, but if you have any uh, that are uh, sticking out in your minds, uh, yep. go ahead and share them. Yeah, I absolutely have one. Um, I, I don't know if this was something that was done on multiple occasions, but I've never seen it before. Um, one of the final panels of the Spider-Man issue, um, they left all of the text boxes blank and Stanley was like, hey, you readers are smart. You just fill it in yourself. Write your own dialogue. And like, it just came off as really ballsy of them to, to do that. Like, the only way I think that they would be able to get away with that is if they had just like wrapped up a pretty solid story and it kind of felt like they did. They were kind of taking a victory lap and, and leaving it up to us to, to figure out I did. I thought it was effective. I thought it was pretty cool, and it gave it a little bit of, um, you know, character, a little bit of wings to the audience too, and it really set a good tone. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that until you'd mentioned it. Um, but it's so funny, like, and that's something like that feels very like Deadpool of today. Like when mm-hmm. you're reading Deadpool, the comics, fourth wall like, is broken in some way, and Stan yeah, does that a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even in this era, all the way through, that's just part of the, the comics where they're they. They still feel more real than DC, but they make you feel included in the story in these weird ways by giving these nods. So that's an excellent panel. Yeah. 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 You have a sense that even if it's not true, they project a sense that everyone who's involved in creating these is having a lot of fun, Um, which, (laughs) you know, I think is a pretty good trick to pull off uh, because we have an idea of, you know, some of the crazy deadlines and you know, brutal work schedules that they were under. Um, and to actually be able to feel like this is an enjoyable thing to be doing and boy, I would like to grow up to do that. Uh, that's a good trick. Yeah. (laughs) It tricked probably a whole horde of people and some who we've talked to into doing this. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was so good to see you again. Um, and so glad to hear that you are doing well in all of this madness. Um, where can our listeners find you on the internet? Uh, and what would you like them to do once they do? Yeah. Um, if you want to learn more about the Piper, you heard that name and you have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, picture is definitely worth a thousand words here. Um, so check it out on all the social media at the Unipiper. Um, my website is unipiper.com where you can, uh, 
by your own, you don't have a birthday, Graham. Um, but uh, if, I, if I could encourage you to do one thing, it's uh, go check out Weird Portland United. Um, website is weirdportlandunited.org. And there you can sign up and you can become an official Portland weirdo yourself. Awesome. We'll make sure that all those links are uh, in the show notes. So be sure to check those out. Um, and yeah, uh, Weird Portland United is such a, a great idea and a great cause. Um, and yeah, I'm so I'm so happy that you brought it to life. Um, it's just fantastic. Thanks, guys. It's been a blast uh, catching up. And uh, thanks for getting me to read something a little bit outside of my comfort zone. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, well, that's that's what we do. Um, we we uh, subject people to these things because I had this idea that it would be fun to read every Marvel comic uh, eventually, uh, and then Rob was too polite to say no. That way, so. I was. I think I was equally as crazy for this idea. This sounds like the best <laughs> book club ever. And then, you know, cut to a year and a half into it and go like, I'm really getting tired of these daredevil stories right now uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh but we have so many ahead of us uh yes. and uh hey uh one thing that you can do to help support us uh would be uh to leave an itunes review um that helps uh get the show discovered um and uh helps us out a lot um, building up that subscriber base. Um, and uh, you can find us on the internet at marvelbythemonth.com. Uh, hit up the shop once you're there. Um, you can get yourself one of the Mjolnir Stay Inside and Read Comics t-shirts uh, designed by Mr. Rob Milne. Marvel by the Month is our handle on Instagram. We're marvelbtm on Twitter, uh, facebook.com slash marvelbythemonth on that thing. And then uh, drop us an email or a voice memo at marvelbythemonth at gmail.com. Did I get it all? I think so. And, you know, we, I know we have even more celebrity guests like the Unipiper level um, coming up, too. So I'm very excited. I've, I was so excited that, uh, you know, wildfire threats couldn't stop me from doing this tonight just to talk to Brian again. <laughs> uh, it's been a while, man. <laughs> And hey, uh, something, I, I'm just going to throw one more plug in here. Uh, something I was seeing shared a lot today uh, is if you want to uh, help with the Oregon wildfires in any way, um, the uh, Red Cross is a great place to start. Um, you can either make a cash donation or donate your bloods to it because um, they could use it. So um, it's going to be a lot of people needing some extra support uh, in these absolutely crazy times so uh, anything you can do to help would be um, very much appreciated by us and by them um, so yeah um, I think that's it so uh, I will just say now that my name is Brian Stratton and mine is Rob Mill and we will see you next week for next month Ready?